This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Letter from the Bureau, a special series which is part of The Straits Times Asian Insider podcast channel. I'm your host, ST's foreign editor, Bhagyashri Gareka. Now, the letter from the Bureau is like a scenic detour from the news that keeps heading the headlines. Elections, recessions, wars, all kinds of serious events that impact us. But in this series of podcasts, we talk about life as it goes on amid all the crises. I chat each month with one of ST's correspondents in the Asia-Pacific, the US and Europe, and they share with you their observations and insights on what's unfolding in their patch. And in our 24th episode, we are speaking with the Straits Times India correspondent, Debashi Dasgupta. It's good to have you on the show again, Debashi. Thank you so much, Bhagya. It's always a pleasure to be back here. So, Debashi, you wrote recently about your trip to an Indian city, Kannauj. And that's not a name that many of our listeners would have come across. So, I want to start by asking you, where is this place and why did you travel there? Right. So it was back in 2015 that I had first read about a unique perfume that's produced in Kannauj. It's called Mitti Atr. So this is the scent produced by parched earth when rain falls on it. And this is something we'll get into later during this conversation. And science journalist Cynthia Barnett had written magically about it in The Atlantic magazine. And since then, I've always wanted to write about the perfume making tradition in this city. That's about... 420 kilometers from Delhi and around 120 kilometers from Lucknow, which is the capital of Uttar Pradesh, the state Kannauj is located in. And over the years, you know, since I read that article, I had also seen bewitching photos of rose farms around Kannauj and its production of perfumes from this flower, something we use widely in India, including in my household, whether it's, you know, in our cooking, perfumes of a worship in the form of incense sticks. So a reporting visit was very much on my journalistic wish list. And I'm very glad this opportunity came along for ST when one of the city's perfume makers launched a perfume tourism initiative. It provided the perfect peg to get into the story. So perfume tourism sounds so interesting. And I'm glad you did have, you know, the opportunity to go down. So what was that city like when you went in? Perfume tourism, did it, you know, smell differently from any other city? Well, I mean, the Perfume Tourism Initiative has you know, many interesting components. You visit the floral farms. When I visited, jasmine was in season because jasmine grows in the summer there. And that's very much part of the whole identity of the region because before you get into Kannauj, you cross the fertile Gangetic Plains. The city is located on the banks of the Ganga or the Ganges River. And when I visited the place in May, which was peak summer ahead of the monsoon rains, the fields were laden with mango and millet crops. And it's these fertile fields exactly that produce much of the flowers that Kannauj uses to produce its perfumes, whether it's rose during the winter and jasmine in the blistering summer. But the city itself is nothing remarkable. You know, it's a small one by Indian standards, a population of less than about 150,000. Mm-hmm. None of the tall skyscrapers we have come to associate with big Indian cities today. Mm-hmm. So if you have to imagine a typical scene from Kannauj, imagine a narrow main market street, barely wide enough for two sedans to pass each other, honking battery-operated rickshaws, noisy two-wheelers, oppressive summer heat, your sweat, mm-hmm. the hiss of samosas being dunked in a hot wok filled with well, scent of spices, perhaps cumin, wafting in from small restaurants, preparing a potato curry. And amidst this all sensory overload, 
suddenly you can come across the pleasing scent of rose, jasmine, citrus fruits from its many perfume shops that dot the city's roads and, you know, add color to with the many huge perfumes in transparent glass bottles. And if you have a keen eye, like your keen nose, you can also pick up flashes of Kannauj's past glory. There are arch gateways on its roads set up by perfume-making families that were very influential in the first half of 20th century. There are beautiful ancestral houses and historic monuments that go back centuries. The city, after all, was a key riverine trading center in North India, and historical records say it was also an important perfume-making center as early as the 7th century. So it was a many-faceted tourism-related trip then. Yeah, um, yeah. But I'm very curious to learn how do you make perfume? I've never seen it being done, not even a documentary, I think. So what did you see there? Right. So I'm sure there are many ways to make a perfume, but what Kannauj is known for is its centuries-old distillation method of making perfumes. Uh-huh. So what you have is that the flowers are dunked in a large copper pot, uh, which is known as a deg. The lid is sealed tight using a mix of modern cotton, and it's put over a fire that's fed by using either cow dung cakes or wood. And as the steam begins to rise, it transports the flower's aromatic compounds through a bamboo pipe that connects the deg to a bhapka. And this is a long-necked you know, container or a receptacle that acts as a condenser. And this bhapka rests in a cool water tub, and it's filled with oils such as sandalwood, or mostly today, synthetic alternators, because sandalwood is very expensive, that infuse the fragrant vapors from the day. So these are the vapors that are coming from the flowers and being infused in the oil that's in the bhapka. Now, this distillation process is repeated until the desired intensity of the fragrance is achieved, following which the oil-based perfume, better known as atar, is separated from water. It's an age-old method, Bhakya, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. resisted change because its practitioners believe the use of an open wood fired stove gives the perfumes a certain earthiness, perhaps not unlike the smoky flavor that comes with food prepared on such stoves. And, you know, making perfumes is certainly not rocket science this way. Mm. You can theoretically do it in your kitchen if you have the right equipment, but I'm sure it won't be as effective because these master perfume makers and the workers have perfected this art over centuries. For instance, you know, jasmine is a very delicate flower and just a little extra heat can scald the flower spoiling its scent. Mm. And too much steam in the condenser can crack open the ceiling and spill contents of you know, the tub into the water, wasting hours of hard work. So I think it's a better bet if you want to uh, get your hands on some perfume to right. just buy it from a reliable supplier than producing it in your kitchen. Uh-huh. So I don't imagine I'm going to be making it in my you know kitchen soon. I don't think I'll be boiling, I don't know, jasmine and hoping to get something great out of it. Yeah. But it sounds like you're saying that it's not just the process itself, but it's also, you know, the tradition that, that's valuable here. Yeah. So I suppose there could be a scientific way of producing perfumes. But then what's special here is because they have observed things and done it over generations, you say? Yeah. yeah. And, and because that's the case, they have certain things that they've learned. Yeah. And which then go into giving that particular, what shall I say? Character. To their, yeah, character. So you could follow that process and hope to replicate it elsewhere, I suppose. Yeah, you could. I mean, these are seventh, eighth generation perfume makers uh, and workers who've, you know, worked perhaps all their lives, you know, doing this. So you could try, but I'm sure, again, it's not (laughs) going to be as effective or, or, you know, as productive as they do. So you spoke to these uh, families who are several generations into making of perfumes. 
Did you learn from them as to what makes a good perfume? I mean, how do you know this is good stuff? What do you prize in perfume? You know, that's a very subjective question uh, uh-huh. because you can be an admirer of heavy scents such as musk or swear by light floral notes. I'm more of the latter. You know, I like light citrusy scents. Mm. So it's entirely up to you. Mm-hmm. And once you get down to making perfumes, which is combining perhaps different essential oils to produce a scent, it's an endless palette. Mm. You could imagine a perfume that, let's say, smells like crystal, really? which is what? A crystal is clear, mm-hmm. light and airy. Mm-hmm. So you make scents that go with this sensation. So perhaps mandarin for that fresh citrusy feeling, aqua notes for that cooling sensation and vetiver, which mm-hmm. can be the as well as citrusy. Mm-hmm. So you imagine a certain sensation, you have memories, you have visuals associated with that sensation mm-hmm. and you try and recreate that using smells. And I had asked this one question to Mr. Pranav Kapoor, who is an eighth generation perfume maker who's launched the Perfume Tourism Initiative. I asked him, what if the Singapore government commissioned you to make a perfume inspired by Singapore? What would it smell like? And he told me that he would look to the country's soaring skyscrapers, verdant landscape and abundant water for inspiration. Now, what does this mean in terms of perfume? Mm. So this vision translates into a bouquet of rich woody scents, such as cedar wood for its green landscape, cool aquatic notes for its waters and crisp metallic tones notes for the skyscrapers. So you know, that's how you go about making perfumes. Wow. You know, it's a play of emotions, sensations, and it's not always and related plenty to of a imagination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I'm struggling to think what do what does crystals smell like or what do skyscrapers smell like? Yeah. I'm afraid the idea of traffic and, you know, those fumes kind of crept up in my mind. But I'm sure there's good aspects to what you can market as a Singapore perfume. That's very yeah. interesting. But does this entrepreneur, does he export? Does he... For instance, is it available in Singapore, do you know? I'm not sure about this entrepreneur because he's working a lot with domestic institutions like hotels, royal families, creating signature scents for them. But there are a lot of perfume makers in Nanch who export their essential oils to institutional perfume making houses and cosmetic makers who use individual essential oils from Kanaj to make some of their branded scents. So, for instance... It's likely that if you're buying a branded scent that has rose in it, uh-huh. or let's say Keura, which is crupine, uh-huh. it's likely that it could have certain components, traces of Kanaj's perfumes in it. Oh, interesting. So we could be here using those perfumes without knowing they came from Kanaj or some part yeah. of them came yeah. from Kanaj. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. And now let's get back to my conversation with the Straits Times India correspondent, Debarshi Dasgupta. In terms of cost, what are they like? Are they expensive or...? It is. So compared to, you know, standard off-the-shelf deodorants, you know, a hundred milliliter bottle of deodorant goes for as little as two Singapore dollars in India. These handcrafted Indian perfumes can cost upwards of about $13 for around 10 ml. So it is certainly expensive, which is the reason why a lot of the individual market was lost, making Kanaja's perfume makers more dependent on its two key institutional markets, which is the tobacco industry in India and cosmetic and perfume making houses in India and abroad. So it is, you know, expensive, especially if you're looking at pure essential oil. For instance, jasmine essential oil, nearly 40 kgs of jasmine flowers 
are used to produce just about five to eight grams of pure essential oil, which is celebrated as Ruhimotia. Now that's literally soul of the jasmine and its best variety can cost around 19,750 Singapore dollars per kg. So that's expensive. Yeah. Of course, a kg is a lot of perfume. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so Devashi, you made a reference to a mitti attar, I think you called it. That sounds unusual. Is that something made only in Kanoj? And could you t- tell us what exactly goes into this mitti attar? Right. So Kanoj is definitely famous for many perfume that it produces. One of them is mitti attar that I spoke of earlier. So this is literally the scent of the earth. And this is the gratifying smell that's perhaps known as, better known as petrichor, which is the scent produced when rain falls on parched earth. Imagine the soil in North India. It's been baking over weeks at 45 degree plus heat. And then the first monsoon drops hit it. That's the smell that's produced. So because of summer heat, the soil builds up heady smelling organic compounds called terpenes and others, which is released when rain falls and quenches the dehydrated ground. And science journalist Cynthia Barnett wrote that this scent can so tantalize drought-stricken animals that it sets thirsting cattle walking in circles. So it's that enchanting. Mm. And Kanoja's perfume makers have managed to reproduce this earthy smell using dried soil discs that are used in places of flowers Mm. in the traditional distillation system to recreate this gratifying smell. So that's one of the famous perfumes that Kanoja is known for, but there are others such as Rose, Scrupine, Jasmine, Hina, and Shamama. And Shamama, as one perfume maker told me, is basically India put in one bottle, which as many as 30 to 35 cents sourced from across the country, different herbs, woods, spices. It's pretty much a closely guarded recipe in Kannauj, like, you know, a household fish curry that can change from one household to another. Okay. So did you buy any? I did. I bought some Jasmine essential oil. Uh, mm-hmm. Just about, I think, five grams <laughs> and okay. uh, some rose uh, key iconic products from Kannauj. Okay, so this is, from what you say, a good product and it's prized. So therefore, is this a thriving industry in Kannauj? It is. By one estimate, it's a 30 billion rupees you know, cottage industry and more than half of the city's one million, the district's one million plus population is said to be directly or indirectly involved with the perfume industry, whether it is farmers who produce these flowers that are used in the industry, the workers who work at the distilleries or the perfume shops or who retail these perfumes. It is significant, but I think the industry has seen better days. As I said, the influx of cheap deodorants from abroad that were brought in barrels, literally in barrels in the 1990s, took away individual consumers, making Kanoj's perfume makers more dependent and reliant on the tobacco industry and institutional perfume cosmetic makers. So this is a good product. It's prized, but it's facing some kind of competition from cheap imitators, which I suppose is the fate of a lot of other industries as well. But did you walk away with some kind of confidence that, you know, they will, I guess, go on to have their... You spoke to an eighth generation entrepreneur. So will they go on to have 10, 20 generations? I mean, Um, I think actually, you know, I did come away with a hopeful feeling. The new generation of perfume makers are more entrepreneurial than their forefathers, keen to exploit opportunities that were not available perhaps five decades earlier. So whether it is Pranav Kapoor's Perfume Tourism Initiative that seeks to tap into itinerant and socially conscious Indian travelers, or Devi Gupta, he's another person. I think he was a fifth generation perfume maker. His new range of perfumes that are retailed in very attractive packaging and bottles that are advertised on Instagram. You see, Kanoj's perfume makers are trying hard to break away from what has been the mainstay of Kanoj's perfume industry. 
the institutional buyers and the tobacco industry. And uh, to be frank, some of the products that I sampled are outstanding and uh, can definitely win more patrons as they are more and more. But it's not just the challenge of carving a new market share, I feel, that this industry must overcome today. There are other issues as well, including sustainability. These uh, perfume making process consume a lot of wood, for instance, to fire up the furnaces that steam the flowers. The production of one kg of essential oil can consume as much as 500 kgs of wood. So workers also have to work in the oppressive heat. Imagine working in this furnace in the peak Indian summer, often at marginal wages to produce these coveted perfumes. So sustainability, both in terms of finding more eco-friendly ways of producing perfumes and improving the working conditions of workers at these ancient distilleries is something Kanoja's new generation of perfume makers must be conscious of, I think. Okay. Thank you, Debashi. That was great. I learned something very interesting. And I hope some of us, including myself, can make a trip down there someday. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. And so with that, we wrap this letter from the Bureau. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you'd like to read Debashi's column, we have a link for you in our podcast description box. And you will also find there a link to other stories in our Letter from the Bureau series. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.